welcome to the Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast, brought to you by Amoria Bond. In each episode, Amoria Bond will interview a prominent leader from across their specialist STEM sectors to discuss their personal experiences of progression and share invaluable insights and inspiring anecdotes of what progression means to them. This is Progressing Lives Everywhere. Hello, I'm Natasha Crump. I'm an advisor to the Amoria Bond Board on Strategic Programmes and a co-founder of the company's Internal Ascend Programme, a network for female employees dedicated to attracting, retaining and progressing more women in the business. I also lead the company's Diversity and Inclusion Programme and I am absolutely delighted to be hosting Dr Joanna Abayi, MBE, for what promises to be a very special and insightful episode of the Amoria Bond Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast. It's fair to say, Joanna has blazed a trail as a multi-award-winning social impact entrepreneur, champion of diversity, inclusion and equality, as well as making her mark as an award-winning journalist and broadcaster. Joanna has spent the last 14 years increasing the employment of diverse talent through inclusive hiring practices and creating inclusive working cultures, launching her first charity, Elevation Networks Charitable Trust, at just 18 years old. Founder of multiple social enterprises, including Shine Media, Hayden, and more recently, Blue Moon, Joanna has an impressive consultancy track record, helping businesses in attracting, recruiting, retaining, and promoting diverse talent, and leading businesses through culture transformation, unique recruitment processes, and challenging bias from the top down and bottom up. She has been instrumental in establishing the Creative Diversity All-Party Parliamentary Group with Ed Vasey, MP. To top it off, Joanna was awarded an MBE in the 2020 New Year's Honours List for her services to diversity and inclusion. Wow. (laughs) Welcome, Joanna. Thank you very much for that introduction. It really is an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. And there is so much more I could have said about you. I think we could have filled the whole podcast just talking about your own impressive achievements and accolades. And I really hope we'll be touching on a few more of them over the next half an hour or so. Before we talk more about your own prolific um, progression story, I'm intrigued to know, Joanna, who have been or are your inspirations? Thank you. I had to really think about this because the first place I always go to when I think about who would have inspired me is much, much closer to home. So my elder siblings, my big brother, my big sister, there's so much about them that I want to be and have. So I always think about them. And then again, further than that like my mum and dad and again there's so many things about them uh, that I want to be and have inspired most of the things I've done in my life really so but when we think about it from a professional perspective and who perhaps I've I've looked to for advice for honesty support there's a probably a a big number of people actually and they often say don't they it takes a village Mm. to, to raise someone but I think if I had to kind of talk about some who've had real significant impact um, I would start with my two mentors who've mentored and sort of coached and looked after me for years and years and years, who are Dotton Adibayo MBE and Tunji Akintokin MBE. Dotton is a broadcaster and Tunji is a entrepreneur with a number of social causes of which he, he leads on, but is also has spent many, many years in the technology space in a senior sales role. So the two of them in very different ways have helped shape my life, but also so many others 
through the various channels in which they've set up, whether that is just through personally, you know, mentoring people or whether they've set up organisations where, you know, they're solely based on bettering the lives of other people from all walks of life. I would say in terms of another male, someone who was so instrumental in me having the opportunity to launch Hayden, which was a real pivotal point in my career, is Gary Eldon OBE. I find him inspiring in many ways, so relatable, so open, so honest. You know where you are with him whether that's good or bad. And I really, 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 really admire and appreciate that because not everyone you know, loves you enough to be as honest on, on the days when you could do better as well as on the days where you've done really well. He's also just such a force of nature, so positive, gets things done. As in, you know, if he, if he says he's going to do something, it's probably done yesterday. And he's just so passionate about it and he puts his mind to. And for someone with the level of sort of achievement and expertise that he has, accumulated he has remained very open to helping everyone that he comes into contact with to live up to the same so he's one and in terms of a female who always stands out to me I mean I've been shaped by so many females so many close to home who and they'll know who they are I've got multiple mummies (laughs) multiple daddies as I say that helped to shape me but in terms of from a professional capacity I really look to Karen Blackett OBE not only is she has she achieved so much professionally herself, but whenever you hear her speak, it's worth listening. I don't think I've ever heard something come out of her mouth and I've gone, I don't know why I had to listen to that. I mean, she's always got something that's absolutely worth listening to, moving the conversation forward, positive and proactive. And just considering where she is in her own life professionally, and the boards that she sits on, the campaigns she's involved in, the work she does with government and and our current and and previous prime ministers to shape and support the agenda of inclusion and diversity, which is obviously the thing I'm so passionate about. She still finds time to nominate you for awards, to tweet you when people suggest, you know, who to speak to. And it's not just me, it's so many of us to hold you know, events in her home and invite so many people that are trying to do so much to support and change and and move the dial. And she's just brilliant and does all that while being a mum and just a genuinely nice person. So, you know, as a woman, it's nice to see a woman like that who can be so positive, friendly and warm while having her own personal and professional success and managing that with a family. It, It just makes things feel achievable especially when in the you know if if the inclusion conversations I've had over the years would have you believe that all that stuff's just not possible sometimes for women so I'd say I'd say her and and those three men but that that isn't to say there weren't others that have really largely contributed to who I am and what I've achieved. Something I've observed getting to know you over the, the last few months a little bit and kind of having personally benefited from your generosity, sharing and transferring some of your knowledge onto others. I've really been struck with the impression that yours is a life that's very service driven. You're dedicated to serving others through what you do. You've sort of touched on that already with talking about the people who inspire you, but thinking about kind of sharing the message of how we can help others listening to the podcast in terms of how they can progress the lives of others why do you think that that spirit of giving is so important 
in the in a professional capacity in work in how in, in how you approach your work well thank you that's a really lovely observation and made me feel quite emotional just then no <laughs> I didn't realize that was how I come across but um but thank you I think it's important I don't I've always thought what's the point in knowing something and keeping it to yourself not confidential information about a friend (laughs) I I just realized how that sounded (laughs) I don't mean like confidential things I mean in terms of what's the point of knowing something useful and beneficial to others and like keeping it to yourself I think it's really important that you actually remember like if you know something you should absolutely share it Uh, if you know something about somebody who has a disability and some of the challenges that they have and you work in a role within an organisation and you notice actually thinking about my friend and some of the things they said I don't know if we would really be able to provide them the equity that they need or the support that they need why not share that doesn't I I, I don't think it helps to just to hold that information in I think that actually really helps to move things on and I don't think it's everyone's responsibility to fix the world that's not that's not what I'm suggesting I just think that if there is something you know that can make an experience easier for somebody else why not share that I also think we've got to remember none of us are perfect. Anything could happen at any stage. And what level of compassion would we expect to receive or would we like to receive should that happen to us and just affording that to other, other people? And none of us are, the, are like completely the finished article. We're always a work in progress. So even some of the most impressive people we know are constantly having to progress and develop themselves and learn. So I think it's important that we afford, in the same way that we're a work in progress, we we afford other people that too, that they too are a work in progress. And if we do know something, because we're maybe one step ahead in something, why not share it? And if and if they know something, because they're one step ahead of somebody else, why not share that? And I think if we do that, we would just generally, I think we'd do a lot more successful, not only within business, but also like within society. What you're saying's really hit the spot with me there. And it's something that thinking about Amoria Bond's own diversity and inclusion journey this year has actually really resonated as you've been speaking, because what I've recognised is in myself, as well as others, is there is a real fear of getting things wrong. There's a real fear of being honest sometimes and actually it's really important to acknowledge that as you've just said we are human none of us are perfect and if we approach approach things in the right way with the right intention and in an environment where there is genuine psychological safety for for employees that fear really shouldn't be there how 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 would you go about helping businesses to empower people to 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 feel that it's okay to make those to make mistakes or to potentially make mistakes yeah I I think it's rightly so of course there's been you know political correctness has made sure that we speak to individuals in a way that is representative of how they identify and that's great because then we've all got somewhere that we can go to and we can uh, use that information to inform the language we use the approach that we take especially in the inclusion agenda within the workplace but inevitably, things aren't always going to go to plan. So in the US, you hear people of colour. We've had a term BAME, which I've just seen a huge campaign saying BAME over because people are fed up of the term BAME. You know, you have people of colour, you have people that are happy to be called black, you have those that are happy to be called brown, you have people. And so 
identity is a very personal and emotive thing. So I think if we're not in a position where we feel comfortable to ask those questions, you're probably going to get it wrong anyway. So I always say, if you start from the place of I might make a mistake and I might get this wrong, and you say that I may get this wrong, my intention isn't to offend, it's to actually get it right. And you put that out there in the first instance. In my experience, most people have been happy to correct and educate. And I'll give you an example. It's a shame because children do it more than adults do because they're not they're not aware of, you know, all the ways that they could offend. But I'll give you two examples. I was given a scenario recently, actually, where a little boy was in a wheelchair and had a visible disability. And he was speaking to a little boy sat next to him. And he hadn't noticed the visible disability of the little boy until this moment. And he went, oh! and, and of the, the little boy who, who was disabled, he had one leg and was in a wheelchair and he also had shorter fingers than the other little boy. So the boy notices this and he goes, oh, your fingers are different to mine. And he said, yeah, the little boy says, yes, I have a particular condition. That's why my fingers are shorter than yours. And the little boy said, are you okay? Does your mum know? Have you told your mum? And he said, yeah, my mum knows. And then he goes, then five minutes later, he's still taking it all in. And he goes, you only have one of your legs. And he says, yeah, I only have one of my legs. And he explains why. And the innocence in that dialogue was just that little boy noticing a difference, asking about it in order to, to understand it. Now, it's not, it's, it's going to be tough, I would imagine, for the parent or loved one of that little boy, and even for that little boy to have the resilience of how many times a day he's asked that question, especially at school by children who do ask those questions. But the healthy thing about that was he had been clearly supported enough by his family and those around him to help him to, you know, to uh, communicate when, he's, when those, those questions are asked, to feel confident enough to do that. And also in being able to do that, that child stops staring, asking, treating you differently, avoiding you because he's asked the question. And I thought that was the most innocent way because there was no harm intended there. Those boys play perfectly well and speak perfectly well. They sit next to each other all the time in, in this particular group. So that is fine. But it just took for that interaction. And it takes me back to a time when I was in school and a little white girl said to me, so my mummy says that you're black, but when I look at your skin, it's brown. And I think that's a, and I remember going, yeah, my skin is brown. And I was too young to explain, you know, why I was perceived as black. Because my own identity was, well, my mummy's white and my dad is black and I'm brown. So I always saw myself as brown and I saw my dad as black because he was black, if that makes sense. So, so I myself was unfamiliar with that but I I understood that they saw me and I saw myself in the same way and it was fine it was just it was just a question because there was a there was a confusion on the part of that little girl and so I think if we don't make it okay and it's for those questions to be asked it becomes really really difficult and some of the work that we do with our consultants who are perhaps disabled or those who might be a trans man or a trans woman is they, they welcome that conversation also. Now, it's difficult in the context of work because if it's a colleague you've been working with for a long time, you've built up a relationship with or indeed someone that you haven't, it's really difficult to know when and how is the right time to have that conversation. Now, the reason we say 
where you're nervous about that, then bring in individuals who can confidently speak about some of these things, who've made part of their role and, and their job to be that of educating people about these differences. I think that's where you can use the expertise and the, the resources of charities and organisations that are absolutely here to educate on those differences. And so that's why um, if you use them and you say, you know, you've, you've transitioned, you know, you're transitioning, talk me through what that means. What does that mean when we say transition? And you may, you may have lots of questions around that, and that's, that's absolutely fine. But don't be afraid to ask them. And if you're nervous about asking them to, say, a colleague, then find a professional outlet that is happy to have those questions, however clumsy or wrong you may ask it, or you know, whether you use the right language or not. Find an outlet to do that, because often that is what's stopping us from, from moving forward. And I think we saw that a lot with the Black Lives Matter movement. People didn't know what to say next. Mm. People didn't know whether saying black was inappropriate, whose job it was to educate people on you know, some of the black inequities that individuals were sort of talking about in light of some of the police brutality that we saw in the US. And, and, and then what happens is the dialogue stops and then we don't move forward. So it's really important that even if you think you're going to get it wrong, perhaps feel the fear and ask anyway. And I think as long as you say up front that the intention is not to offend, it's actually to educate people will be more welcoming of having that conversation. Absolutely. Um, you've created a perfect segue for me into the next, <laughs> to my next question, which is ideal, because I wanted to talk to you a bit about your work with schools and colleges, because you're a school governor, I think at two, two yeah. schools or colleges, you're a trustee and director at Haberdasher Asks yeah. Federation Board. Apart from the fact that I'm sure, like me, People listening to this are wondering where you find the time. Um, <laughs> um, I, I wonder I, that every day. <laughs> um, you have a magic clock that is more than 24 hours that the rest I of the day is how I know. I don't know how I do it. I, I'm really interested to follow up. And I, th I think you sort of started leading into that conversation now already. But why you choose to support educational institutions and why education is so important in progressing the diversity, inclusion and equality agenda and how that will help shape the agenda in the future, creating tomorrow's leaders, really, um, without wanting to put words into your mouth. I'm, I'm really interested in that area. Yeah, so I'm really passionate about education because I think if done inclusively, it's a great leveller. And by that, I mean, when I say inclusively, if, we, if we're challenging the biases of teachers, perhaps, in the classroom, if we are ensuring that we resource schools with enough pastoral support so that when there are children experiencing difficult times, whether they are in an independent school or a state school, that there is the pastoral support to wrap around them to make sure they're still getting access to an excellent education. If there is uh, the resources to help children from low-income homes have a warm breakfast in the morning and to have dignified uniforms so they can feel a sense of pride too when they come to school, irrespective of what their family's socioeconomic background might be. I think done the right way, it's a place where actually you can learn your skills, your talents, you can form relationships with people that last a lifetime, you can have really personal accomplishments that you achieve, you can learn instruments. There's so much confidence and building and things around that that you can do that I think school provides. I also think that, for me, coming from a 
really low income home. That was a really important part for me going into school. And that was so, so important for me. I used it as a way out of the uh, low income home and environment I had. It allowed me to meet people at university who were similar to me and also different to me, who taught me so much about the types of things I wanted to do in the world and the sort of work I wanted to go on to do. I met teachers who were so committed to my success and who responded to my enthusiasm for learning. I had a, a school, considering it was a, a state school and probably under-resourced back then when I was there. I don't know, schools are under a lot of pressure now, especially with COVID, but I don't know how, at the time, how much pressure they would have been under, but I assume quite a lot. They were teachers that were going above and beyond for kids, for kids like me from, you know, from low-income homes where they were trying to get the right role models into the school, help us with our CVs, give us, you know, level the playing field for us. And I, I think that if you are a child born into a set of circumstances that present a number of challenges and barriers for you, school done the right way, an education done the right way can help you to move out of that situation and into a, a place where you can find your own safety and happiness. So I think that's why I'm so passionate about it. I also am really passionate about identity within school and making sure that it's also a place where people aren't just getting an excellent education, but are learning about the differences in the world and compassion and understanding the beauty in difference, and I know it sounds really cliche, but I mean really understanding it, appreciating it, valuing it, seeing why, you know, sometimes you can be quiet and let someone else speak because they know what they're talking about on this matter and without that taken away from you. You know, to teach young women to celebrate each other instead of listening to the messages sometimes that we see and through media communications that maybe present something otherwise. The same with, you know helping young men express themselves and speak. I feel like there's this whole other curriculum in which a school can also provide in, uh, as well as the excellent education. And I always say to the schools that I'm a governor for, imagine if we got both of those things right, the incredible individuals that would go on to lead society in the next generation. So I think it, I'm, I'm so passionate about it. Slightly off track from script here, but I'm really interested in this point because personally have been involved with a fantastic local charity in Manchester. Um, I was on the board of trustees for a number of years, led by a friend of mine, Christy Sperling, called the Engage Project, which works in schools with pupils who are at risk of exclusion. And there's a number of outreach projects in the Greater Manchester area. And also having recently just signed up to the Alito Foundation Mentoring Programme and knowing the impact that providing opportunities to employees who wouldn't necessarily have thought of it themselves or felt they had the access to, Moria Bond has provided, they've, they've supported the Engaged uh, project. I'm not the only one in Amoria Bond who's signing up to the Alito Foundation. And Amoria Bond do quite a lot of other work in terms of outreach work. They send employees over to Peru. They've got a long-term project over there with a, a children's refuge and house, house building project, etc. To me, that's a really important part of opening, or a really important way maybe, is that the organisations can approach the inclusion conversation with employees in, in maybe a less 
in a way that may feel less threatening to employees. Do you think that's a that's an important thing for organisations to consider? It's not just looking inside when they're thinking about, OK, how do we become diverse and inclusive? It's actually looking at what can they be doing outside their own organisation and facilitating for their employees outside their organisation as well? Absolutely. There is so many ways to you know, to engage with organisations. The, the one that you've just mentioned sounds absolutely incredible. And it's, it's those sorts of things. And I think it's the, the only the only thing I would say around that is making sure that it's not done as a as a CSR. Oh, yeah. 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 Because I think businesses do it with their, their corporate social responsibility hat. And that's that's brilliant. But when you think about it, what you don't want to do is other the groups that you then do that work with. So, you know, it's seen as a charitable thing that you're doing or, oh, look at those poor individuals. So we're going to go and do some work with them because we're better off than them. And it, it, it sometimes you, that would never be in the communications and that would, I'm sure would never be the intention. But it's just about how that messaging or how that relationship feels to those on the receiving end. So, for example, in the instance of the organisation that you mentioned, so that's looking at children who are at risk of exclusion. And I'm assuming interventions then that give them back some purpose, some fulfilment, some confidence, some identity that's positive. So that actually we're creating a young person that's no longer kind of in attentions with the education system, but has understood that perhaps maybe maybe it may even come to the point where they realise academically, I'm not as enthusiastic about learning these things. I'm not as excited by some of the academic subjects but what I have learned is I love these things and those the, the time that those individuals took to spend with me has made me feel actually that I'm, I'm worthwhile again and that maybe I wasn't great or I wasn't so engaged with the academic side but what they have taught me is that I have great leadership skills or I'm really creative or I've got a huge imagination or I'm really resourceful or resilient and all these other things that provide people back with that sense of purpose and so I think that it's really important that we remember that and to be really honest about when we look for talent, being aware of what good talent looks like. I think sometimes we have an idea of, you know, you don't want that kid with all the problems from the pupil referral unit. That's just a load of headache and hard work, which can certainly be the impression that I've heard from particular businesses. So let's just go to, you know, that uni where we know that they're, they've been to an independent school they've done all these great things they've joined all these societies and they're an a-star student and because that's simpler and that's easier but you don't really know if it is or it isn't until you've experienced those individuals half of the things that we build up in our mind about people from different groups who are unfamiliar to us is that it's going to be a lot of hard work and half the time it isn't and sometimes it is and it is complex but it's only as complex as you make it if you really want to engage with some of the, as, as you would have probably seen, Natasha, with some of those that were maybe at risk, there may have been some complex issues that were going on there. If you invest and you engage and you're consistent and you remain reliable to those people, you end up becoming actually a source of their safety, their one piece of consistency, which they use then actually as a, as a springboard for their own self-love and their own journey that they then go on. So I think it's important that you don't make that judgment. I'm doing some work with a business at the moment and they typically hire from a particular group of universities when they're thinking about their early careers. And one of the managers, if you like, sort of said, when we hire through this other charitable group that they do some work with, I see a level of enthusiasm I haven't seen for years. These kids come in, they're so on it. They've got hundreds of questions for me. They're happy to be here. 
they stay longer. Some of them don't even have enough money for lunch and they're still so engaged. Mothers come in and there's the, um, we don't see the same kind of behaviour. And that's not to say that everyone that's from a more privileged, perhaps, background behaves that way. But it's just saying that everyone's an individual. So we can't make assumptions about how people are going to behave or how engaged they're going to be. And actually getting to know somebody and giving them an opportunity is the best way of understanding, actually, if they are all the things that you've assumed or your bias tells you, or actually, if indeed they're not, and given the right environment and opportunity, they really thrive. So my, yeah, so my advice to businesses is don't be too premature on going to an organisation, you know, hiring or giving an opportunity to one person or working on a programme with one organisation and they're not going to plan and then giving up entirely on the whole thing because of the effort that that took. And instead, you know, persevering with it and finding the right fit for your organisation, because you will reap the benefits once they return. And, and want to work with you, you'll reap the benefits of them raving about you to others because then others will want to work with you. And just personally, it will feel hugely rewarding. And then as a business, you've got this really diverse group of people. And I always say when it comes to diversity, just remember, any customer can pick up the phone from any walk of life. And you need to know how to communicate, engage, support and deliver to that customer. It's the whole, it's at the heart of business success is, you know, how to respond to everyone that could possibly be a customer of yours and understand and support them to want to engage with your business. So if you keep hiring people that you feel are of a particular profile because it's easier and it's less hassle, you just start to cut off your ability to engage with other groups because you send a message that no one in there looks or sounds like me. I feel like they're just not going to understand what it is that I need and the nuances of the cultural needs that I have. And that's where it just becomes really difficult. Absolutely. I think something that's shone through as you've been talking and that I have also kind of seen as we've been working on and working through our own um, journey of inclusion internally. Recently, we've been doing some sessions um, as part of National Inclusion Week called Inclusivity, which is focusing on, on, on taking the time to spend a bit of time with someone you wouldn't normally go for a break for or go out for a drink for after work or necessarily even talk to in the workplace and just trying to get people to spend a bit of time with other people. That concept of giving someone your time and finding out more about them seems to me such an essential and yet simple part of creating a sense of belonging and a sense of inclusion within organisations. And it's, it's kind of run through a lot of what you've said today. And actually, it makes me just reflect on the steps that we need to take to create a more inclusive and equal workplace for people actually are. And if you're creating an in inclusive workplace, really properly inclusive workplace where people feel they have equal equity, we're more likely to keep retain diverse talent and actually to attract more diverse talent because you're bound to be sort of sharing what you're doing with the outside world which will which will attract more diverse talent then to you naturally I'm just wondering your thoughts around that yeah I mean I think I think there's something in being proactive as well really proactive in finding where people are and what they're doing and whether they want to be with you why they haven't you know noticed you before and then understanding the patterns there, because that can tell you a lot about where to where to start making yourself visible when it comes to 
diverse talent and 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 uh, inclusion and inclusivity. I think what you when you said inclusivity, I liked that. It gave me the. It, I immediately pictured people having sort of open chats about various things around a cup of tea. And, I, and I'm not sure if that was what it was, but that's was. what kind of... <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was. Mind. Yeah, but that's, that's, that's what it's all about. It's a journey and not expecting things to change so immediately. But actually in having these open chats and conversations, learning what's missing, because you don't know what you don't know at the end of the day. So if you allow yourself the opportunity to hear from others, then you do start to, to really get a clearer idea of what's missing and when you what you said about equity you know you don't really know what that looks like for individuals if you haven't had the conversation about it absolutely absolutely and I think for me it's that's it's 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 the message to employees that everyone's empowered to make a difference on creating a more inclusive cult it doesn't have to be every single thing as you know kind of a really centrally led program and formal training or there's there's a place for that as you've said there is a place for the proactive kind of strategic side of things but there is actually a really important side of of inclusion that is in ensuring that everybody within a company within an organization feels empowered that they have a voice and they have an impact on how other people experience the culture of their organization yeah I mean one of the tips I would always say is if you need to understand how your people are feeling and you wonder how they're feeling. One of the questions I always say um, to get an idea of how well you're doing in terms of creating an inclusive environment is asking them, what's it like to work here? And how could it be better? Usually when you ask that question, you, you tend to get a really honest, productive response, rather than people just kind of using it as an opportunity to complain. You'll actually get people to tell you no, this is what it's like, actually, which is why it's always worth having the open conversations. I think sometimes businesses really overcomplicate things that they don't really need to in terms of having the conversation about inclusion. Sometimes it's just in the question you ask. You know, it really is. Um, and providing an opportunity. Quite often when I ask that question, people will say to me, I don't know how my staff feel never really asked or I've never had the opportunity to say how I feel it's really great to have the platform you know there is so much of that that goes on what's the danger do you think Joanna at a time where diversity inclusion for some has become you know a kind of I hate to use the word trendy but it's become a kind of it's become the the buzz thing this year and some organizations are sort of scrambling around to be seen to be doing something and are kind of engaging consultants like yourself to come in and, and you know start asking these questions what's the danger of organizations who are kind of coming at it to be seen to be doing the right thing in actually starting conversations that they aren't prepared to follow through with action yeah I think it's a really good question because it's really important actually we did probably talk about that that at this moment in time I think it's not seeing this as a moment and instead seeing it as a, a movement forward and actually thinking if we're, if we're going to use this time for anything it's to get our ducks in a row and to work out where are we and how can we make long-term change so I think that the important thing to do when with anything at the moment is to if you start these conversations is to actually have an honest and open conversation about things to get you to where you need to get to as opposed to thinking that you need to 
just do something very quickly to react. It's just not ideal. And I think that that's a really tough thing, I think, that businesses haven't got their head around. I think they're still fight, they're still struggling with that. It's not about, oh, you know, there was a Black Lives Matter movement. What are we going to do about the equity of our black and brown stuff? Oh, it's International Women's Day. What are we going to do for women? It's actually every single day, what are we doing as an organisation to make sure that everything we do is inclusive? If that underpins and is a fabric of the way that you behave, you don't really need so many complex and oh, we'll quickly do this event because we haven't done anything. If you're constantly doing it and it's becoming just the way that we do things, then you'll actually, you'll do a lot better. People can see through tokenism, therefore you disengage very, very quickly. Other businesses will start to get it right and you'll lose your talent to those organisations. You will lose your talent to the organisations who have taken the time to get this right. So it's really important that actually you do invest. The reason I ask you to ask your people what they need is lots of businesses have gone, I'm going to write a statement because, you know, we need to have written a statement about Black Lives Matter, for example. I always say, did staff say they wanted a statement or did they say they, did we ask them what they wanted? What, what would have shown your allyship? This statement or something else? Because actually what they may have liked, rather than you writing a statement and nothing happening, was not writing a statement, having one-to-one conversations with them, perhaps, providing them with counselling or a wellbeing coach to speak to if they felt, you know, some of the trauma that was going on. It may have been that you instead provided or development opportunities for mid-level black and brown talent, instead put them on a trajectory so we could see them into leadership. Like, What did they say they would have liked in that moment, as opposed to a black square on Instagram? And I think that's what it is. It's about not seeing it as this moment. What are we going to do every day that actually moves the agenda on for those individuals? And if you don't know, ask them and they'll tell you. And do that with all of the areas of which you want to look at. What about faith? What about class? What about age? What about the way that we treat our parents within the workplace? The assumptions we make about caring responsibilities, all of those things, ask people what they want. And so then when things happen, you know how to make a meaningful response that leads to long-standing change as opposed to something that, as you say, is the trend at the moment. There are lots of companies that trip themselves up because they made a statement about the fact that they stood with the Black Lives Matter movement and posted statements and posted sort of these black squares. And I'm only talking about that because that's the most recent sort of profile. It's been We've seen the recent increase in that profile of the Black Lives Matter movement, why I'm talking about it, but this happens with many things. And so they, they, they all kind of responded uh, by, by doing something and they tripped themselves up because then the, the, the response that they got from public was but you don't have any diversity at your board level you don't have any diversity across your organization and then they have to come back and try and defend themselves with which would which could all be very reasonable reasons as to why that hasn't happened or it just highlights that a lot of the things that or policies that they have aren't a aren't anti-racist and if you if you read the book on anti-racism it's really difficult to understand what we mean by sort of an anti-racist policy unless you've really got your head around what anti-racism is and so sometimes it's if you know that a particular process isn't seeing that you're using whether it's your recruitment process your development process isn't seeing the diverse you know ethnic diversity coming through then you have to maybe assume that there's something racist in that policy that's because we're not doing anything against it so you know we have to find something that is very anti that in order to see some of the change so what would be more honest and more open is saying we acknowledge that like, it's better to write a statement saying we acknowledge actually that we haven't gone far enough 
to be anti-racist in some of our policies, because if we had done, perhaps we wouldn't have seen the inequity. That's not calling yourselves racist. That's identifying that in the structure and the process that you have, it doesn't benefit. It's not it's not inclusive enough to give the equity to everybody that it would need to in order to see more of a balance and representation. And I think it's more honest to say that than it is to say, you know, we stand with you and we're going to do some work on this. Because what does that really mean? And you're not going to say anything else, are you? Because reputationally, you need to. So, and people can see through all of that. So, yeah, the reputation is not helpful to you. And in the long term, you benefit. And my last point on that is, for so, so long, the business case was the compelling reason for, for diversity and inclusion. It makes business sense. We read these reports from McKinsey um, and it says such and such profits increase by X amount if you have a diverse team or a diverse leadership, etc. All of that. None of that was compelling for many years because businesses were doing things that are very tick boxy. And I've never in all my 14 years of doing this, I've seen the most energy at this point around the Black Lives Matter movement. And yet for a really long time, I was told that explaining the emotional reason for diversity and inclusion isn't enough. Explaining the human reason for inclusion isn't going to sell. In fact, the business reason is what it is. And it's so interesting that now it took the, the human experience and a, and a global pandemic for people to suddenly actually go, we should really do something about this. Because what's what triggered the Black Lives Matter movement this time was the profile, the increased profile of it. It's been a while, around a while. Was the fact that we watched people being killed by police officers in the U.S. and then we suddenly went, goodness me, there is a large amount of inequity. And then the then there was a lot of energy around it, and the agenda was pushed. And I just think it's interesting that for so long you're kind of told that the business case is the one that we need to explain, when in actual fact the one that's pushed activity has been the human and ethical reason for it which is why I go back to you have to start thinking about the workplace in the same way as your network, whether, whether it's your family uh, network or your friendship network and working out how would things be unfair for these individuals in the working world? I, I'm, do you know, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. I wrote a, I've written an article recently and still in edit. And one of, the, one, of the thing, one of the areas that I discussed in that is all around this idea of a business case for diversity and inclusion. And for me, how wrong that is. I, it, it, it was something that really struck me in all of the literature, in all of, since, since kind of taking a lead for the business on diversity and inclusion. Everything I look at talks about make your business case. And I've really struggled with that all the way long, all the way through in everything I've read. So to hear you kind of really call that out is actually a really powerful message. And I think it for me is a big, big takeaway from this this whole discussion in terms of encouraging businesses and business leaders who will be listening to this to think about what's their reason for wanting to create inclusion and diversity and equality within their organisations and actually what should that reason be? And and just really being, I'm I'm really, really, really hit a nerve there with me, Joanna. So thank you for raising that. No, 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 no. You're 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 welcome. It's just I think it's just a, you're right for observing it and writing about it because it's absolutely accurate. It's absolutely where we've got to. There was always this thing about a business case, a business case. And I used to find it so odd that I had to have a business case for why we give people the opportunities that they have the talent and skills for. I've always found that an odd, an odd thing to have to justify. I'm really mindful that we might be um, 
in danger now of a world record length podcast but I just want yeah, to I ask you one more thing and then I promise I'm going to let you go I couldn't not talk to you today about the diversity and inclusion charter because obviously you've been heavily involved with Amoria Bonds company chair Gary Eldon who you've already talked about he's been a huge force within Amoria Bond in terms of our own internal diversity and inclusion agenda and strategy and obviously you sit on the charter panel seeing the almost snowball effect internally since Amoria Bond signed that charter um, we were one of the first organizations that signed it back in July by signing it by putting that accountable pledge in a public domain has really seemed to kind of galvanize movement within the organization and th- this is a company that is genuine you know this is this isn't a new commitment as such so it's it's new that it's public but I've I have been amazed by the momentum it seems to have given to change and investment and time around the whole diversity and inclusion program and also the way it seems to have empowered our our workforce as well it just seems to have by putting something out publicly and holding ourselves accountable publicly appears to have had a really galvanizing effect for employees as well there's so much more discussion that's being led by our employees not just by the company and by sort of the formal program I wanted to ask you about that and ask you why you think it's so important for businesses like Amoria Bond and for anyone listening who hasn't signed up to that charter, why it's so important to publicly sign up to the Diversity and Inclusion Charter? I think it's really important because it holds you to account. I think there's a lot of organisations that are really happy to talk about, you know, what they will do and their plans. And then actually, it's about holding you to account. So it's all very well making a statement about, you know, what you're going to do, but who's going to check that you've done that? Who's going to make sure that that goes through? Who's going to provide you with the support that you need to make sure that you achieve that? So the charter really helps you to clarify as an organisation in your mind the strategy and the approach that you're going to take. And then in addition to that, uh, allows them, the charter, to to hold you to account so that when you next check in or you're next taking part, you're able to say, this is where we got to as a result of this and as a result of our commitment to X. And I think that's what's really important about the charter. It, you can't really hide from it once it's been said and once it's gone out and, and you've publicly said that that's what you're going to do. I think it also sends a strong message to your internal employees. It says to them that you take it seriously, that it's not just something you're going to say and it can be kind of swept under the carpet when another agenda comes along or something else becomes a priority. It, it means that forever, forevermore, that commitment that you've, you've voiced is going to be something that you have to live up to. And therefore, that puts a lot of confidence in your employees' minds that you have the right intentions and commitments. And therefore, it, it, it gives them a reason to want to stay and to hold themselves accountable also to the contribution that they make to the inclusive environment. Absolutely. Joanna, I literally, as you know, could talk to you all day long. And it has been my absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today and joined us for Progressing Lives Everywhere. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for all the insightful advice and suggestions and just your honest sharing today. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I think it's brilliant what you're doing. I think it's incredible all the work you've already started and the journey that you're already on. I think it's amazing that, again, you've, you've put, put yourself out there and, 
and said, look, this is the work we have been doing, but we're also going to do more and we're publicly sharing what those plans are. And I think that's that's also incredible. But you are an absolute natural at this. And I, I think you may have another vocation in your pocket that if you didn't know already, you should have hopefully learnt today. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> no, definitely. You're brilliant. It has been a pleasure speaking to Thanks you. Thanks so much, Joanna. Thank you for listening to Progressing Lives Everywhere, brought to you by Amoria Bond. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others find the podcast. For more information on Amoria Bond's specialist services and to access the podcast show notes, head over to amoriabond.com. Join us next time as we continue to progress lives everywhere.